Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. This is not just Christianese that I say. It's a privilege for us to be here. It always is a privilege for us just to minister. Um, And, uh, of course, the huge advantage we do have, just given the fact that this is how life is for us, is that we do travel a lot, and we are able to be in several churches across the world. And... uh, um, this is not flattery, but my goodness, this is a great church. I think your worship is outstanding. My wife leaned over and she said, why is it that whenever we travel and we're in another church, the worship is always better than ours, you know? And, um, you know, she, she has credibility in that area because she is kind of partly responsible for how it looks and feels, you know? And so we always like to just tear pages out of books that we go to. And certainly this is one page that we're traveling home with. And so we really loved, loved what it is that you guys are doing. Um, I am, um, you know, with interest I look at the children lining up here, uh, given the fact that yesterday I did feel that God had something to say in terms of what it was that he was placing into this church that was going to be through the life of the, the children and through their, um, their particular gifting that God was giving to them. And I'm, I'm sure the elders will in time tell you what that was specifically, so I'm not going to... Um, rob them of their their moment but just to say this you know isn't it interesting that we look at these children and it's almost as if we can see 10 years you know that's what happens to children as they grow up and pretty soon you know they're 10 years older than who they are right now what they are now and you know I thought 10 years ago my son was four my son Jordan was four now he's 14 and his mother says he's changed. Now she said to him this year, boy, you need to know something. I'm the same mother. You've changed, you know. <laughs> um, just seems like they hit that 14-year-old zone and, and uh, you know, there's not that much affection anymore. I mean, how many of you have got 14-year-old boys and moms? Is that true? Is, is that the vibe, you know? Um, so we've had two daughters. Both of them are significantly older than 14. Um, one of 32 and the other one of 30 respectively and now you're doing the math and you're thinking to yourself gee that's a big gap yes it is same wife just in case you were thinking you know (laughs) Um, and they both live overseas you know the one lives in London the other one lives in Dubai the Middle East the one in London has two children and so of course we love coming to America because it gives us reason to have to fly through London first and then of course we're able just to see the grandkids but, um, you know, 14-year-old girls versus 14-year-old boys, well, we're discovering it's a little different. But, uh, you know, I say that because we're so ready to accept that, well, you know, these kids, 10 years from now, they're going to be 10. But what about in a church context? Is it just that we can presume that this church is going to be around in 10 years' time? I've been doing this for quite a while. And actually, the sobering thought is that some churches don't actually reach the 20-year mark. And that for me is, is perhaps disturbing because what happens? You're either too much of a threat to the enemy, and so he does his level best to make sure that he stunts the growth of the church, or else maybe there's just some very, very unwise decisions that are taken by leadership, and it thwarts the growth of the church and the momentum of the church, And so there are reasons why churches don't exist after 20 years. And I have to say that most of them, sadly, are because of not only demonic interference, but because of human interference. Church splits. We'll go from your plant. No, well, a split and a plant, we'll call that a splant, you know. (laughs) Um, And uh, part of what it was that I felt God emphasized yesterday morning, just as I was preparing to meet with the leaders, was that God wanted this to be a multi-generational church. 
So you're going to have your grandparents and you're going to have your, your, your parents and then you're going to have your young adults and your children, but also you're going to have your adolescents and your infants and your grandchildren. I just felt that for that to be a reality, it's going to require just some effort and some energy and some participation. And can I throw this in? Some covenant. That's a good Bible word that. But I'm not convinced that we necessarily always understand its content. Covenant maybe just comprises of just four things, which is a submission, a commitment, a serving, and then the preserving of one another. And I'm sure there's many more that you could add to that. But if I could just say, there are a lot of empty chairs here. And maybe there was someone who occupied the chair that's now next to you. But why don't you just reach out your hands to an empty chair? Because 10 years from now, those chairs are going to be full. Is that right? We're going to be living in a very different world if you think about what 2024 is going to look like. And if you just go back 10 years and you think, my goodness, hasn't the world changed in the 21st century? Of course it has. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. But these chairs, who's to say that you're even going to be in this venue? But the concept, growth, expansion. See, that's one of the things that God put in place yesterday and I'm not sure it was the first time that you heard that give yourself some elbow room you know you got to stretch out and expand you know that that's kingdom God wants to populate heaven it's not just for us <laughs> he's really keen to see us do what he said in the first place we should be doing which is discipling people and so these empty chairs let's pray over them shall we do that father you have people in this city you actually have people marked in other nations that are coming to the city. They don't even know it, but you know it. And God, these chairs are for them. These chairs are for our neighbors. These chairs are for our friends. These chairs are for our work colleagues. These chairs are for those who are in close proximity to me relationally. These chairs, Father, we're asking that you would grow this church as you are, as you have been doing, and that you would send people that you have called to be here. We want people that will come not only just to be a blessing to us, that's wonderful, but we want people to come that will build with us into the future. And so, Father, you know the end from the beginning, and we're just saying, can you keep us faithful to the call that you have on this church? That 10 years from now, there would be another moment of celebration, and who knows, perhaps there could be a reference to, remember our first 10 years. God, it's wonderful to see your faithfulness inscribed upon our history because history is actually your story it's his story and so father we're asking would you come in as has been prayed as we've worshiped we've just said let there be none other that our desire be for you let let our worship be centrally focused on you let that always be true for this congregation and father even as we've prayed that you would send these people in we're saying here am i use me use my mouth Use my hands, use my feet, use my gifting, my hospitality, my smile, whatever it is, Father. Use me to draw them into that place where Jesus becomes their Lord and Savior. Amen. Great. I wanted to talk to you this morning about, and the reason why I'm, I'm on the subject at the moment is because Nadine and I live in a big city, Johannesburg, 13 million people. When you consider the greater dynamics of Johannesburg, it's a big city. And so we're very familiar with lots of pedestrians and lots of traffic jams. And when you plan your day, you've got to think traffic first. 
when you plan your meeting because our church happens to be on the wrong side of town wrong side as in all the freeways are not necessarily going to lead you to our church we have to plan we just got to plan okay so when you're doing something huge you sit down and certainly that comes into your planning is what about traffic you know come three o'clock forget it you've got to finish before three otherwise you're never going to get to where it is that you're wanting to go so we understand the big city and so while big cities have traffic and have pollution and smog there's another thing that big cities have and it's this distractions for you and i and so you know big cities are nice to live in i'm a big city person give me the smell of diesel and fog you know anytime as much as i like to hear a bird sing you know maybe a seagull best suits my hearing you know because i like the coast um my son we were driving through buenos aires and as you can well imagine how many of you have ever been there i won't say that's a hectic place that's that's huge and after a while, he was saying, hey, listen, do you mind if I wind down the window? And I, at that stage, he must have been about 11 or 12. And I said to him, why? He says, no, I want to hear the traffic. I thought, oh, there's my boy. Man after my own heart, you know. He says, I want to hear the sirens, man. He says, dad, come on, man. This is a vibe. And that's great. I hardly imagine he's not going to go and live up in the hills in a little treehouse, you know. I think he's a man for the city. So the cities are great places to live in. And I think God loves cities. And clearly, if you listen to the statisticians and you listen to those who build cities, design cities, they're telling us that the urban dynamic is actually the thing that's on the up. People are moving back into cities. Um, and so a lot of the statistics, when you look at them and they talk about what's it going to be like in the 20s, well, the cities are going to be pumping, absolutely. Yes, you might be living in a different world because things are changing so rapidly. And I'm not convinced we'll get to the 20s and then everything will stop changing. No, no, it's not going to be like that. But a city has got so many distractions. And actually, tragically, what can happen is that those distractions can work against what it is that God's wanting to do with his church. You think about it. You know, why is it that we come out on a Sunday morning when this morning, actually, you could be out walking your dog, you could be running. I saw people, I saw them do, I saw your, well, I was down there, I watched everyone. Dogs were having fun. Even the squirrels were out, which means that I think your winter's over. I was watching the people running past, you know, in their bling and their nice outfits, and everybody gets dressed up to go running. It never used to be like that, you know. Nice, luminous colors, and they, you know, out there. Why are they doing that and they're not here? I wonder how many of them have chosen, who are Christians, who are believers, who've chosen to do that and not this. And now you're thinking, oh, she's a lot of legalistic talk. Oh, this is just going to be heavy. But actually, there is a thing about idolatry that we as Christians have got a fine-sounding argument for why it is that we do things that distract us from our priorities. You're going, quiet on me. This is a difficult talk. Make it easy, you know. Even if you don't agree, just smile and nod your head, you know. <laughs> Because I'm talking to people who live in cities. When I gave this in my congregation, I actually almost had to stand up and say, well, I don't know whether to apologize for just drawing your attention to this dynamic of a golden calf, a little sacred cow that you've been building on your own. You know what's fascinating about that golden calf? When Aaron, Moses, goes up to the mountain to have his encounter with God, and it's a significant moment for Moses, and it's a significant moment for God's people as well. But after a while, he's away so long, they go to Aaron and they say, Aaron, listen, he's dead, man. God's killed him. We don't know where Moses is. He's not leading us anymore, so actually we need a God to lead us. And why don't you lead us? And you know the story. 
So Aaron says, okay, man, all right. You know, the devil made me do it. No, the people made me do it. Oh, whatever, you know. Can't arrive at a decision, but uh, well, give me all your earrings of gold and your necklaces and your bracelets and your rings. And what he does is he, he melts them down and then he designs this golden calf. And then for me, he has the audacity. And the reason why I use the word audacity is because this is the same man that was with Moses when they went to Pharaoh and Moses said, throw your rod on the ground. And it turned into a snake and it ate all the other Pharaoh's snakes. This is the same rod that Moses held up in the Dead Sea, or the Red Sea parted. Now, we're really talking about a man who'd seen the supernatural. And he says, um, well, he has your God. This is the one who delivered you out of Egypt. I, he must have been high. I mean, he, I don't know. There must have been something heavy that he was on for him to have said that. And so, of course, God says to Moses, while Moses is having his moment with God, he says, listen, I'm going to kill the people. They've gone and he says that. And Moses says, no, you can't do that. I don't kill them. Well, he hasn't seen quite what it is that they've done, you know. But he intercedes for the people. He says, no, no, no. You know what? All the people are going to say is this, this, these Israelites, their God brought them into the desert to kill them. What kind of a God are you going to look like? And he negotiates with God, you know. And God says, no, you better get down there because they have now done sacrilege. And so he comes down and he hears this party, this reveling, this big vibe going on. Everyone's happy and dancing. And, and then he sees this golden calf. And he says to Aaron, what's up, what's up with this? Aaron steps back and says, well, you know, you weren't coming down again. And the people said they needed a God. So we just threw all the gold in the fire. And this is what the Bible says. And I jumped this calf. It's like, really? Just jumped out. And I think sometimes we're like that, you know. We're, uh, we get this fine-sounding, bizarre argument that to some people who are equally deluded will actually agree with and think that's wonderful. But then you've got the God factor that just shakes its head and says, that's impossible. Idols don't jump out of the fire. Idols jump out of your heart. And so this morning I'm wanting to just perhaps help us to understand, is there a line in the sand that we can cross over and be into idolatry? Is there a line in the sand that suddenly says, um, I've got a golden calf. And in actual fact, it's more like a sacred cow. Because don't touch it. Because if you touch it, I'm going to defend it. If you say anything, watch, I'll come up with, well, you know, and, and you'll have five-point arguments that will debate the reason why you should have your golden calf. I am, um, while well, watching, what do they call people who come from Chicago? Not Chicagoites. <laughs> Chicago? Okay, those people, all right. I saw them out there. And in my wallet, I took a $5. I turned it over and I saw, in God we trust. You've seen that before? I mean, this country's famous for that, isn't it? In God we trust. And I'm thinking, well, wow, you started off so well. <laughs> Actually, I'm not really convinced that that's true for today. Because I think the God factor has somewhat changed a little. And it's actually true for all the world. It's actually true in every city. And I think every church is facing the same dilemma. They're golden calves that we've allowed to distract our hearts. And we've gone after them. And so now it's in my economy, I trust. Can I say this? It's in my military, I trust. This is an incredible nation. And it's amazing how the world looks to this nation to protect us. 
It's an incredible, incredible responsibility to have. But I'm not convinced that there's been any army that is that trustworthy. Because if you think what the scripture says, it says some trust in chariots, some in horses. Let's add to that. Some trust in the economy, some trust in the military, some trust in maybe their jobs. Some tr- and there's a whole list that we can come up with. But in fact, he says, no, no, no. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so we've got great reasons to trust in all of those things. And that's why I'm saying I could probably debate why we should trust in these things. But when it becomes a distraction and when it becomes, those things are big, obvious things. But what about a life goal? Isn't this the world that we're living in now where it says, so what are your goals? When you go for a job interview, they're going to want to know. So what's your ambition? What motivates you? Because if we're talking a life goal, well, you're never going to accomplish it unless you commit to it. Is that right? And what does that commitment mean? That commit means you've got to give you everything to it. How many of you have ever been involved in sport? Thank you. To succeed and to be into the team, you needed to go to the practices. And obviously as this, this kind of little inclination towards professionalism in the sport has gone over the last 50 years, well, to really achieve, you've got to devote yourself to it. And that word devote is a good word that we use in worship, isn't it? Because devotion for my sport versus devotion for my God actually requires the same thing. It requires all of my resources. It requires my time, my treasure, my talent. It requires a focus. Now, just in case you're kind of feeling, oh, this is heavy. Let me say this to you. I helped pioneer professional surfing. I added growth to that sport as a competitor. And um, God had clearly gifted me in that particular area. And I had a level of athleticism that assisted me in placing in competitions. It required, though, that I give a devotion to it, which was easy because I loved the sport. And so it required sacrifice of sleep because the best surf conditions very often are early in the morning. And so I would be there before the sun came up. I lived closest to the beach out of all my mates. I surfed at a very famous beach break, world famous. Out of that beach came world champions, and out of that beach came fashion icons. Out of that beach came gotcha, uh, came um, billabong. Uh, you know, so from a point of view of that being like the surfing mecca, people would travel across the world to come and surf that particular beach. And so the culture that I was part of was a very devoted culture. It necessitated that, man, you've got to get out there. But it wasn't so much that I felt the pressure to do it. I just loved doing it. Unfortunately, I never had mature Christian believers who could encourage me in what I was doing and in the encouragement hold me accountable to some good disciplines that were going to help me put that sport into perspective. And so I have presently... On my eldership team, a cyclist who's a top South African cyclist. And I've gone to him and I've said to him, my friend, I would rather see you competing on a Sunday morning than sitting in a church where you are. That's a paradox, isn't it? I mean, well, hold on. God's gifted him. God's raised him up to be a top person. He is counting more for God in a world where there is no God, the one that we know. In the world where there's no lordship to Christ. 
but in a world where actually he can be salt on the meat, where he can be relevant with his Christian testimony. If he wins, guess what? They'll listen to him. If he's just an also-ran, kind of the casual dude who goes out there and cycles every Saturday morning, you know, does a breakfast run, and then, no, 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 sorry, I'm going to be in church. Well, I'm not really sure. He's, can, I, can I just tell you that God has gifted that man? What about you with your business acumen? Nadine and I were both involved in business at one point in our lives. And for us to be successful, let me be honest, you've got to get up early to catch the worm. Isn't that true? How many of you are involved in business? To be successful, it doesn't just happen. People think, oh, you're lucky. No, no, no. You sit down with a business person and they'll tell you about the sacrifices they've made and the commitment and the extension of time that they have to work. Are you having a holiday? No, no, no. We're going to work. Are you with me? That's reality. And so I'm not saying for one moment that actually the church needs to have this monastic lifestyle where we all just go off and live in the hills and, you know, put the blinkers on and we wait for Jesus to return. That's not the world that you and I are living in. The world that you and I are living in is actually very demanding. And I'm here to say, well, maybe if we just get this thing right and there is a line and God just says, well, just stay this side of it. Don't cross it. Because when you cross it, that's when you quickly come up and defend your actions. But let's just have a look at what the Bible says. So we're not going to read Exodus chapter 20. Or rather Exodus 32. Exodus 20 is where you read about the Ten Commandments. And people say, oh, you're going back to the Old Testament, that's law. Well, hold on a minute, nothing's changed. I mean, if you're thinking about the command that says, I don't want you to have any other God before you. You read that? He said, nothing. Nothing that's going to attract your worship of me. Nothing that's going to simply get in the way of worship with me. And he says, I don't want another image. In fact, I don't want anything that's going to obstruct you and I connecting. So let's remember that. And so we're going to begin, and up behind me is going to come a text in Matthew chapter 6. And this is where I've chosen to go, simply because Jesus is um, he, uh, he's bringing a new culture. And the reason why I'm reading it from that message is often we read a scripture from our Amplified, from our NSV, or from our King James, and we only know that context. And so I'm taking it from the message, because it's just going to throw a little different light on things, and I'm actually hoping that it works. It says, don't hoard treasures down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust, or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile your treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place where you will most want to be and end up being. Amen? Your eyes are the windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed and green and distressed, your body is a dank cellar. And if you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one god, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. If you decide for God, living a life for God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There is far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description. 
careless in the care of God. Not careless, but just they don't ever care. Why? Because their trust and confidence is in God. You count, and you count far more to him than the birds. Has anyone by fussing in front of the mirror ever gotten taller by as much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion. I was saying yesterday, God's not going to say, well done, good and fashionable servant. <laughs> God's not going to say, well done, good and fancy servant. God's not going to say, well done, good and fanatic servant. Why do I say that? Because so many of us can be cause-driven, and that cause can be a bit of a golden calf. Revolution. We stay in opposite Lincoln Park, and I mean, that's got some history. I tell you, if you just look at some of the things that have gone down, where everyone's been given, especially in this nation, the wonderful thing about this nation is that you're all allowed to have an opinion. But when your opinion becomes your cause, <laughs> do you understand that sometimes it can be a massive distraction and all you're thinking of is, well, it's a political thing now and you're going to become someone in this political arena. And so it actually becomes a cause and it does what? Steals your heart, takes your treasure, your time and everything else. And now you're devoted to it. All right, where are we? I lost my place. Do you think it makes for such a difference? It's that much of a difference. Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wild flowers. They never primp or shop. Maybe you don't know what the word primp is. Primp is when you do this, you know. Touch of makeup, little, put the hair in place. You know, that's what it says about the flowers. They don't primp or shop. But have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never ever seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is get you to relax and not to be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things. But you know God and how he works. Steep your life, God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about messing out, missing out. Find all your everyday human concerns, what God is doing right now, and, get, and, and don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Now, we sang a song. Let me just remind you. One of the first worship songs we sang, To you our hearts are open, nothing here is hidden, you are our one desire, only you are worthy. Did we mean that? You see, we can sing that, and there's a whole lot of little golden calves, like trinkets just hanging off us, you know. And we come to church and we sing. And all I think is happening is God's just putting a magnifying glass on the church and saying, you know what, those things are baggage. Those things are distractions. Yes, I've gifted you. And yes, I've even placed a call on you to be effective and successful here. But there's a perspective, there's a context to my giving you of that gift. And it's never to have it replace these things that I'm going to tell you about in a moment. Worship of things, persons, deities, all begin in the heart. Unlike Aaron who says, oh, I just jumped at the fire. no. It jumps out of our heart. Now, you and I might say, well, you know, we don't have the pantheon of gods and idols that were present under Canaanite rule and under um, all those other whatever 
where you could actually go to the temple and there you'd see these things. But what we do have, and this is Nathan Carstens, he says this, well, actually, we face the pressure of face false values, materialism, love of leisure, sensuality, worship of self, all sorts of things that we place great emphasis on security. And in actual fact, it's a sad thing. And then he goes on and he mentions a few things. He calls them the Canaanite balls. Those jolly-natured gods whose worship was a rampage of gluttony, drunkards, and ritual prostitution. And so he, he categorizes it, and he tries to bring it into our terminology, and this is what he says. He these, groups them up in these, in these groups of threes. Some of them you'll identify with. One, I don't think you will, but anyway, let's get there. It says sex, shekels, and stomach. Those are all self little, little things that we, um, we're happy to, to run after, aren't we? Selfish. Pleasure, possessions, and position. Fame, firm, and family. God's not going to say, well done, good and famous servant. Isn't he? He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And this one, I, I guess it's, it's just slipped in here because it was a South African context that I preached this in. Rugby, the rand, which is the unit of currency we use, and revolution. We always are on a mission, aren't we? So where do we draw the, draw the line? When I have no time for relationship with the Father, I'm in trouble. When I have no time for fellowship with the body of Christ, I'm in trouble. And I think it's actually as simple as that. So when I'm out embracing what it is that I'm good at, when I'm embracing what it is that I feel I need to do, I've got to take the dogs for a walk, let them run around and bite each other and chase them. I've got to do that, you know. When I'm doing those things, when it interferes with my relationship with my Father in heaven, I'm in trouble. And when it interferes with my connection and my commitment with the body of Christ, I'm in trouble. Why? Because both of those are emphasized with equal importance throughout Scripture. Body of Christ, it says, don't neglect the assembling together. There is no rule or law that says we cannot get together as a group, community, a church, as often as we do. You're living in freedom here. And so we look at that text and we think, well, actually, that can become a reality to us. But what we've allowed to do, tragically, is we allow these other things to distract us. And can I tell you that some of them, when you think they actually sound very innocent, I've got family coming. When family could be an idol. Your kids could be an idol. I've got family coming, and they're not going to understand. You know, it's family tradition that we all get together when this happens. If it robs you of your connection with the body of Christ, I ask the question, it could be that in your heart you're carrying an idol when you can defend that. And if it happens all the time, well, then clearly it is. If it happens once, I guess... Maybe there is a bit of grace. But when it becomes something that you say, oh, no, 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 this is a value and it's a tradition and it's a culture. And can, can, can you see that actually sometimes they're good things? And you're sitting there saying, yeah, but what's wrong with it? Actually, nothing. There's nothing wrong with having a nice house. Nothing wrong with having a nice job. There's nothing wrong with having a nice bank account. It's not wrong to go out and to exercise and to try and be the best at what it is that you're doing but i tell you when it imposes on two vital essentials for our happy living and being fulfilled and living in peace we got a problem 
It's as simple as that, but it's as difficult as that as well. Let's have a look at just talking about this heart. Very often when the Bible speaks about heart, most often, more often than not, it's speaking about what is very central to us. It's speaking about that innermost being. It's speaking about that part of us that looks like God. It's speaking about the part of us that has an eternal value to it. And there are other times when it speaks about the thing that pumps blood. I think of Nabal, who was Abigail's wife, who later became David's wife. And uh, what happened is Nabal is in a situation where he's a very rich man. And so David sees his richness and says, I wonder if there's a bit of generosity in this man. And sends his troops through and says, can you feed us? Nabal writes back, he says, forget it. I'm not interested in feeding you. And so Abigail hears this and she realizes, goodness me, you've just messed with King David. I'm going to go out and tell David that you made a mistake. And in fact, I'm going to intercede here. So she takes food out to David and David says, gee, this is a good thing that you did because actually we were going to kill your husband and everything else here. And so she waits for the evening. The next morning she goes to her husband because he was partying. He was having a jaw. Oh, you wouldn't know what that is. Having a good time, you know. And so she goes through and she says, listen, now that you're sober, let me just tell you what went down yesterday. You turned down David. I went out, met him, and gave him food. And you didn't. It says, his heart became like a stone. And he dropped to the ground. And 10 years later, he died. So the heart there is the blood, that thing that pumps blood. But for the most part, it's talking about that which is very central to us. Now, if you look at Lucifer, Lucifer said in his heart, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So for ages, he was meditating. With this thing in his heart. Esau. Esau hated Jacob because obviously the blessing was transferred. And he says, when the days of mourning of my father are, are over, he says, he says in his heart, he says, I'm going to kill my brother. The rich fool debates within himself. In other words, he has this big conversation. He's sitting here at Trump Tower somewhere or wherever you got your this here. What is it? Excuse me, the Willis Tower. He's got his feet up, cigar in his lips, and he's thinking. Where's he thinking? He's thinking about things in his heart and he's planning he says i'll tear down my bonds and i'll build this and then i'll just have a, a restful time and what does it say it says this night your soul will be required of you but where did all of that thinking and all of that exaggeration and extravagance come from his heart and so our heart plays home to what we worship and the heart can be proud the heart can be wicked the heart can be bitter the heart can be troubled the heart can be hard it can be diabolical it can be covetous And when I look at each one of those, and I think if I have a proud heart, it doesn't just happen. It's because actually I've made a decision around something. And the next day, in consistency with that decision, I've made a choice that supports that decision. And I've actually heard excellence described this way. Excellence is when I can make a decision, and the following day, I make a hundred choices that support that decision. Where are those decisions made? In my heart. Where are those choices made? Same place. And so I can choose, or rather I can say, I want to make a decision to uh, run a marathon. I've got to couple that decision up with some good choices. The following day, either I go and buy myself a pair of running shoes, get the running gear, and look at a plan and say, I'm going to run this far. So I have to make another 100 choices to make sure that that decision is a good one. But where does it all happen? It all happens in my heart. And so to be proud, it's going to start in my heart. To be wicked, it's going to make 
Stuff in my heart. What about this? Other things that can happen in your heart. You can be wise. You can be clean. You can be soft. You can be pure. You can be upright. You can be tender. You can be willing. You can be broken. And they're all heart things. And then you've got this scripture where Samuel's looking for someone to anoint as king. And then he says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Look not on his appearance or at the height of his stature, for I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so when Solomon is going to become king, it says, actually what you need to do is you need to become and serve God with all of your heart, just like your father David did. So the heart is a, is a key function here. I love this text. So Jesus spoke to them. He says, you're masters of making yourselves look good in front of others. But God knows what's behind that appearance. What society calls and sees, mon- sorry, what society sees and calls monumental, God sees through and calls monstrous. How many of you know the story of Frankenstein? Victor Frankenstein wanted to create a world with a noble race. That's how the story goes. And on the contrary, he didn't create this world of a noble race. He created this monster. And if you know the story, it's actually quite a sad story because Frankenstein was promised a whole lot of things and he didn't get them. And so, of course, he ended up going to wander in the North Pole. Now, that was the outermost part of extremity, if you think about it, back at the day when they wrote. I mean, subsequent to that, you know, we've been sending people to the moon. And so now we've got aliens that come into our stories. But that's what he did. He just thought, I'll create this monster. Not at one state, it was to create this creation, which subsequently translated into a monster. And sometimes it's like that, isn't it? We create these golden calves, and they become just monsters. I'll tell you a story. Um, there was uh, four sons of Indian descent, Asian Indian descent, and uh, they were sons from a royal household. And they got together one day, and they said, you know what, we're pretty sure that in us lies some speciality. Let's go out and discover what that is. And so they all went their separate ways and they made an arrangement when they would meet again and they all came back. So the first son, first brother says, he says, oh, I've got a speciality. He says, if you give me any bone, he says, I will be able to design and create the flesh that goes with that bone. And so the second brother said, that's amazing. He says, you've got to listen to what I can do. You give me that bone and that flesh. He says, I can design the hide or the skin and the hair that actually goes with that combination. As the third brother stepped back, he said, you've got to be kidding. He says, now listen to what I can do. He says, you give me a bone and some flesh and some skin and some hide. He says, and I will create the perfect limbs for that particular thing. And the fourth brother said, whoa, hold on. This is awesome, guys. We are a combination of note. Because if you give me a bone of flesh, some skin and some hide, and some limbs, he says, then I can give this thing life. And so they all disappeared off into the jungle looking for bones. And as fate would have it, they discovered a bone, but it was the bone of a lion. And so the first brother gets to work and he creates the flesh. And the second brother gets to work and he puts the skin and the hair on. And the third brother, well, of course, he puts perfect limbs on this thing. And there the lion is there just waiting for the fourth brother to do his thing. Fourth brother steps in and life comes to this lion. Big beast stands up, shakes its mane, jumps on its creators and eats them. And then saunters off into the jungle, contented. For me, the analogy is simply this. We're very good at creating our golden calves. And they become Frankenstein monsters to us. And they devour us of all of our goodness. And then they just saunter off looking for their next prey. 
and they leave us helpless. There are things, reading that text again, but society calls monumental, God sees through and calls monstrous. I'm going to show you some video clips now. And a question was asked to some university students here in America, and they said, what are the three things that you can think of that would make for happy living? In other words, if you truly are looking for fulfillment, and what is it that you would be prepared to give your life to? And unanimously, they all came up and they said, well, clearly it's got to be fame, you know. You know, fame today is such an important thing. Fame today is easy. How many followers have you got on Twitter? How many followers, how many Facebook friends have you got? Isn't that true? I mean, everybody tries to get to that golden number of 1,000. How many friends on Instagram do you have? Isn't that true? Well, who's following me? Why? Because that's my little moment of fame. Fame. And yet there is a honeymoon period for fame that celebrities will tell you that lasts just for a brief moment and then you speak to the Madonnas of this world and they don't even look like they look firstly because they've had so much adjustment, isn't it? (laughs) But it was just their their period, can I say, their honeymoon zone is, is actually over. And maybe it was a monster to them because Jesus said actually what society esteems as being wonderful, he sees as an abomination. And sometimes people don't quite understand that word abomination. Let me put it to you this way. Imagine, do you get thunderstorms here with lightning? So imagine standing next to a lightning conductor in a thunderstorm. Would that be a good place? And you're just leaning up against it, you know? Well, an abomination is when you turn around and you put your tongue on it, okay? You're going to be singing You Light Up My Life to a very different tune, you know? And yet this is what this particular group who asked this question, what is it that's going to give you fulfillment? And fulfillment, you must understand, carries a value of peace. So where is my peace? That's the wonderful thing about Christianity is when you meet Christ, there is a, there is a peace of God that passes all understanding. You don't have to have anything else. You're in right relationship with God. And you know what? That's good enough. Isn't that true? And so here we have fame. I'm going to show you this. Now, let me, let me just, because the clip is very brief. How many of you heard of One Direction? How many of you like their music? Great. Don't worry. You can put your hand up. It's not a golden calf, you know. Okay. <clears throat> great. Great artists, great musicians, but currently enjoying a wave of fame. Now, what I'm going to do is, if they dare place their confidence and trust in what you're going to see right now, you will agree with me that they are fools. All right, And so it's about their fans. Simply going to show the level of maturity of the one directional fan. Okay? And <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it's about a gentleman who grabs a microphone and a camera and he steps out into the foyer of where these hundreds of fans are gathered to buy tickets. And you'll see what they do and how they respond. We're ready when you are. This is scary. We're inside. So many fans everywhere. They haven't noticed me yet. I know that sounds arrogant, but as soon as they see a microphone and a camera, they will go, oh, they started to notice. Uh-oh. Come for a walk. Watch what happens. Ready? <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi. I'm good. Hi. 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 
say? Let's watch that stuff. Hi, guys. One question. How are you all going to marry One Direction? No, how? How? Not are you? How do I go? Get a go. Hey, do you reckon if I say anything, they'll scream? Like if I just said, pajamas! Hey, girls, give it up for Dust Mites! <laughs> Joseph Coney! Not that many that time. Not that many. One Direction. Do I have what? No, sorry. Can I still be your friend? Didn't think so. They're using me. Well, there you go. Can you imagine the next One Direction equivalent is on the horizon, by the way. And they're going to come along, and guess what's going to happen to all those groupie fans? They're simply going to slip away and go and scream for them. All right, I'm sorry to disappoint you One Direction fans, you know. But that's what the kids were saying. I mean, this is what these students were saying. They were saying, oh, fame's absolutely essential. And so we'll do anything to be One Direction. And uh, we like One Direction. Their music's great. They're doing a good thing, I hope. But can you just see when we, we, we look at, at what we perceive to be the thing that's going to give us our fulfillment and our happy life. What about this? Then the next thing they said was intelligence. We're living in this age of information. And if you're bright, well, then you'll be accepted into our community. And you'll get a job. And, of course, uh, intelligence is a big thing. And, of course, today we've just got this multiple of choices when it comes to tablets. And if it's not Android, then it's this. And if it's that, and, you know, there's, there's all of this that's going down. And so I came across this particular clip which describes technology over the next few years, over the next 10 years. And it's actually quite fascinating as it begins to help us understand the pace and the speed at which things are changing. Now, when I first showed this, I had a collection of young people, and I had some older people as well. I actually had a medical doctor. He's a surgeon. And the young people were saying, wow, this is scary. The medical doctor was saying, this is amazing. Wow, if this is where the medical profession is going, he says, gee, I'm in the right industry. He was absolutely thrilled. So, of course, you're going to get two different responses but if anything, this is what is being emphasized as being the thing that's going to provide a solution for all of us. And listen carefully to what it is that they're proposing. Because if we're all clever and if we're all intelligent, well, then we're going to design for ourselves our own heaven. And they're going to say as much in this particular clip. So when you're ready, let's look at how technology progresses. Can you hear it? Is it right? Two million years ago, our earliest ancestors created the world's first tool by chiseling one rock against another until all that was left was a flint spearhead. This method, starting with a block of material and chiseling away particles, is known as subtractive manufacturing. Fast forward two million years, and we now have additive manufacturing, or 3D printing, which is going from deceptive to disruptive growth at this very moment. Through the process of 3D printing, where material is added layer by layer to build any three-dimensional object you want, literally from the bottom up, 
With 3D printing, you can 3D print a solid block of materials or a block with your name written on it and a thousand moving parts in the same amount of time. Complexity and personalization come for free. Soon, instead of ordering, say, a new iPhone case off Amazon and waiting 24 hours for overnight delivery, you can just download a file and 3D print it on your desk. This technology has the potential to disrupt a $10 trillion global manufacturing industry and create a new generation of entrepreneurs. 3D printers, whose parts are driven by computers, are part of the larger exponential technology category of robotics, which are becoming more intelligent, more versatile, and capable of doing jobs that could once only be done by humans. Today, working robots range from Google's driverless car to suitable technology's telepresence robot, which can help you transform your senses from anywhere to anywhere, instantly, without transporting your atoms. But tomorrow's robots will be combined with another exponential technology, artificial intelligence. The ability of a computer to understand human language, take direction, provide answers and opinions, taking our robots from those that stock shelves to those you trust to expertly perform brain surgery. While today's artificial intelligence exists in forms like Siri and IBM's Watson, which understand the nuance of human language, in the future, AI will look more like Jarvis from Marvel's Iron Man, quickly gathering incomprehensible amounts of data from the Internet to make incredibly accurate split-second decisions. But we're not talking about your father's Internet anymore. By 2020, the number of networked devices on the planet will have grown from our current 8 billion to over 50 billion and moving quickly toward 1 trillion. This global network or Internet of Things will connect everyone and everything. And at the end of these connections will be an explosion of a trillion sensors, taking in images, listening to sounds, and measuring everything from vibrations to acceleration to temperature. The information gathered by these sensors will then be carried by the Internet of Things to AIs, which will then mine this explosion of data, allowing you to effectively know anything you want, anytime, anywhere. Perhaps this shouldn't come as much of a surprise, but the rate of technological progress is actually accelerating. After all, unlike the two-million-year-old spearhead, the earliest mechanical computers, invented a mere century ago, have been doubling in price performance every 18 to 24 months, progressing from mechanical computers to relays, vacuum tubes, transistors, to today's integrated circuits at epic speeds. Computers are now a million times faster, a million times smaller, and a thousand times cheaper than they were just 25 years ago. At this rate, over the next 25 years, computers will soon become microscopic in size, infinite in supply, and effectively free. This infinite computing power, along with artificial intelligence, will converge to transform the last, and certainly not least, disruptive exponential technology we'll be talking about, the field of synthetic biology. Every living organism contains the instruction code of DNA, written in four letters, A, T, C, and G, that directs everything, what proteins and carbohydrates the cell produce, and where the cell is muscle, nerve, or skin. Today, with the advent of synthetic biology, DNA has become our new programming language. Using infinite computing and AI, we can design a sequence of DNA that will direct a cell to manufacture the perfect protein or carbohydrate to be used for foods, fuel, or vaccines. Far more tailored and efficient than ever before. Today, we are going from evolution by natural selection, or Darwinism, to evolution by intelligent direction. Thanks to these six exponential technologies, capabilities, and knowledge that once fell solely under the domain of powerful governments and the world's largest corporate giants, are now tools that sit in the hands of the entrepreneur. 
giving you the power to see and fix problems faster than ever before and moving us toward a world of true abundance and the unprecedented creation of wealth. The next 25 years are going to be an extraordinary ride. Buckle up and let's get started. Hello. <laughs> How's that? Who's frightened by that? Yeah, who's excited by it? Yeah, exactly, you're going to get that response. And if I can just capture the very last paragraph, we will see and fix problems faster than ever before. In a sense, you can see why this group of students said intelligence is something that they would feel has been essential that makes for happy living. It says, moving us towards a world of true abundance, and the unprecedented creation of wealth. After all, that's why you go to university, isn't it? So that you can get an education, so that you can get a job. Really? And so what we're looking at is there is an expectation that is created by this presentation that actually intelligence in itself, if devoted to, could provide the world as a place of peace. What about this? This is the next one that they said. They said money. Oh, money, money, you've got to go after money. Because if you go after money, well, then, of course, you can make yourself look good. And we all know that looking good makes for happy living as well. And so money is another thing. So what I did was I managed to get a hold of Time Magazine. And maybe you can put the images up behind me because they're pretty helpful when you see. Time Magazine actually produced a magazine, which you can see it's called the Luxury Index. And, of course, these particular items caught my fancy because the one can't see it quite clearly, is a pair of shoes with feathers on. This one over here down in the bottom corner is a watch with feathers on. And the watch is advertised as being perfect for your summer holiday. Okay. And then, of course, there is this, what would you call that, a purse? Um, do you call it a purse, a clutch bag or whatever? All of these things, incidentally, probably cost about $20,000, you know. And so that is the luxury index. And so you're talking to these students and they're saying, well, what's going to make for happy living is, in fact, if we've got money. So there were the three things. There was fame, there was intelligence, and there was money, all of which make for happy living. But if you go back to what Jesus said, Jesus didn't say that. He said something different. He said this. He said, uh, your masters are making yourself look good in front of others, but God knows what's behind the appearance, what society sees and calls monumental. God sees through and calls it monstrous. I'm bringing this to a close. I found this very interesting statistic here. You're not going to find peace in this world. So writes the former president of the Norwegian Academy of Sciences. And if they're Norwegian, you know that uh, they know what they're talking about. Isn't that right? Okay. <laughs> and so you have a combination of historians. English, Egyptian, German, and Indian. And they came up with some startling information. They got together as a group around some coffee and began to just share some information. It says, since 3600 BC, the world has known only 292 years of peace. And so given where we are now, 20 to 14, you do the math and you come up and you see it's the equivalent of saying over the last 100 years, there have only been five years of peace. So we're actually a very dissatisfied bunch, and we always have been, even before Jesus was around. It says, during this period, there have been 14,351 wars, large and small, of which 3.64 billion people have been killed. It says, the value of the property destroyed 
would pay for a golden belt around the world, unfortunately it's in kilometers, 145 kilometers wide and 10 meters thick. It says since 650 BC there have been 16,000 arms races, only 16 of which have not ended in war. The remainder ended in economic collapse of the countries involved. Moreover, in excess of 8,000 peace treaties were made and broken. You're not going to find peace here. You can chase as much fame as you like. You can chase as much intelligence as you like. You're going to chase as much money as you like. You're not going to find peace because, in fact, all of them on their own, just like Jesus said, you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon is the personality attached to finance. Okay, You can't serve them both. Either you'll hate the one or love the other. And so actually what we're looking at is just drawing a line and just saying, what is robbing me of my relationship with God and what is robbing me of my relationship and my commitment in and through the local church? The picture of peace. Long ago there was a man who sought the perfect picture. I'm bringing this to a close. Perfect picture of peace. And so after much research, he couldn't find one that he felt satisfied the requirement of what he perceived to be peace as being. And so what he did is, being a person who loved art, he decided to have this contest, paint peace. And so, of course, there were subscriptions that came in from all over, far and wide. And eventually, the great day of revealing what peace was arrived. And so he got a couple of judges together, and they began to unveil these artistic paintings of these works of art. And there was a hush that descended on the people as they just thought, oh, surely that's the winner. Oh, no, that must be the winner. Just beautiful descriptions and depictions of peace. Eventually, there were just two paintings left that were still veiled. And one of the judges walked up and unveiled it, and everyone just began to applaud because surely this, if anything, depicted peace. It was a beautiful scenery of a lake with the moon coming up and willow trees and sheep grazing and some drinking. It was just, if anything conveyed peace and then the master himself he got up and he unveiled the last one and it was almost like a gasp as people saw what it was because if anything at face value it didn't really look like a picture that depicted peace it was the picture of a waterfall but it's almost as if that the people who were seeing it could feel the icy coldness that was coming off the waterfall and in the backdrop there was just these clouds black clouds and it looked ominous and then kind of out of the, the cliff, out of the rock face, was this branch that was leaning out almost to tempt and to get in the way of this great big rushing waterfall. But in the elbow of that same branch, nestled in a nest, was a bird with its feathers over its chicks. And he turned and he said, that's peace in the middle of what looks like turmoil. And the truth is, is that you and I will only find our peace when we do what it was that we were singing about, when we put our eyes on Him as our God in heaven and we don't allow ourselves to become distracted and we keep Him as being central to everything that we see as what describes devotion. And if I can be devoted to Him and if I can be equally devoted to the people because I think my devotion to the church comes from my devotion to God. I'm able to, to, to just make a commitment, embrace, and just put all of what I felt was important. And I did. I, I laid down things. Simply because I felt I had to be in church. And to have to be in church versus to want to be there, very different. If you have to be there, that's legalism. If you want to be there, it's because your heart has realized that actually I need to commit. This is where I live out my Christianity. 
and I too eventually became very famous surfing friends I was older than them I was the generation ahead of them and the one came to me and said gee I want to do the pro circuit I said you want everything here I think you should and he said but it's going to take me out of church I said where's your heart friend it takes you out of church is it because you want to be out of church he said no I want to be part of church I said well then there's got to be a friendship that allows for accountability let's just stay in touch he would phone me once a week he would let me know how he was doing he would come back into the church and we'd say gee how did you do Pierre and he'd say yeah I got this result I got that result and oh by the way I've discovered other Christians and so in accountability he was able to live out his Christianity doing the profession of surfing I had another kid who came to me it was the finals of the SA champs South African surfing champs he was a junior surfer he had made the finals and he was just chatting I was just commending him I was just saying wow geez, you've got great waves to surf today you're gonna do well he says yeah but I'm struggling do you think God wants me to win this competition and I said friend what makes you think he doesn't want to he says well, well, well I don't know I just want to be doing God's will I said I want to tell you get out there you've got what it takes to win God and win it was the beginning of a winning season for this kid who also went out on the pro circuit and he's won so many competitions I just think that you've got to understand if God has gifted you get on with what he's gifted you with but you forfeit to vital essentials relationship and worship of the father and connection and covenant with the people of God you will be the loser don't do it and so I hope there's freedom that comes in what it is that I'm sharing with you but churches in the city there's lots of distractions don't let it rob you of your time with the family of God and don't let it rob you of a relationship with God stay accountable live your sport live your family life live everything your business live it through the local church I'll finish with this story years ago there was a politician who changed political alliance allegiance and I saw in the newspaper here was this gentleman I mean he was a famous politician he was the Minister of Defense in a former political party and I know gee, when you've just changed and you're a politician you're vulnerable and you're gonna accept votes so I thought to myself I'm gonna give this guy a call he's interested he's now ready to rally some South Africans around him I remember being in a prayer time and just simply suggesting how many of you saw the photograph of this politician in the newspaper everyone saw it because it was a big move and um, I said who knows him and one lady put her hand up and she said well actually I'm doing some physiotherapy that's what she was on his personal assistant so I said is there a possibility you can get the phone number of this guy she said sure a couple of hours after the prayer meeting I get a phone call this is his number so I phoned him immediately and I said hi I mentioned his name I said my name's Ashley Bell I've started a church in the city and I just feel I want to pray with you he's a politician he's not gonna say no he just said yeah I think that's great you know I said well let's meet for coffee I remember connecting with him for coffee and he looked at me a little bit sideways and he said well why are you here you know and I said well you're a politician you need prayer and he agreed to that you know and then after just sharing with him because we had prayed as a church before and I went and I said this is what I feel as a church we want to bless you with it's a word of encouragement and then he said you know we need to be doing this more often so we agreed to it and um, on one of the times in our meeting we really became good friends he said you, you've heard I'm going to again we're going to amalgamate with another political party what are the people saying I said well now I'm not a politician at all but I saw the value and it's not that he was part of my church but I saw the value of this is a man who's a captain politically speaking 
man of prominence, great power. Here is a man who was getting counsel from an elder who's not a politician, who's just a church man in the city. And I said to him, you know, one of the things that I think we've discovered is you have friendship and then you have function. My thoughts are that the two of you will function very well as politicians, but do you know him? He said, I don't know. Well, not like I think you're asking. I said, well, therein lies your problem. Because you can function as politicians, you can certainly do the political thing, but can I tell you what's going to be essential to the success of that is, is there a friendship before you function? Is there a relationship? Do you know each other? Have you walked a road together? Has he seen your weak spots? Have you seen his? And still decided we're still going to be friends. And he said, wow, that's interesting. Sadly, he went ahead, he made his allowance, and then both political parties departed from one another. The one is still going, his isn't. Because of a simple thing. There's wisdom in the local church for your business, for your political group, for whatever it is, for your family, for your decisions in life. There's wisdom in the local church. And so when you make a commitment to it, I feel you move further away from getting distracted and getting contaminated and just thwarting your own growth and progress in him. I hope you're challenged this morning. Can we pray? Maybe you share this morning and, and you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And even just listening to the worship, perhaps you're here just as a visitor, God brought you to this place. As much as you responded to an invitation, or maybe it is that you saw the signs outside, and you're here this morning because God wanted you to hear this message. He wants you to know that he loves you. And he's made every provision possible for you to have a relationship with him. And so this morning as you're here, under the sound of my voice, I feel to urge you to respond to that drawing that you're feeling in your heart. Well, what is it that I must do, you ask? You need to surrender. You need to come and, and first of all, just acknowledge that you're a sinner. That's easy to do. You've done wrong in your life. You've missed the mark. Well, acknowledge that you're a sinner because the Bible says the wages of those sin, of that sin is death. The terrible death to die is one where you're separated from God forever. God says, I didn't want that. I want you to be with me. The way I made it possible for you and I to have a relationship is I sent Jesus Christ to die in your place and to take the punishment of your sin upon yourself, upon himself. And so it's simple. All you have to do is just acknowledge that Jesus is your Savior. All you have to do is just say, I accept your Lordship. I want to be your child. I want to be your son, your daughter. When you do that, I want to tell you heaven has moved and God responds. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take this moment and bring people to a knowledge of Christ. That you would bring us as a congregation to that place where we truly would be able to sing songs and know with all of our conscience, yes, you are Lord. You are the King and we are devoted to you. Father, let us just consider what's in our life that perhaps has just got in the way and entangled us and we find ourselves not running because we've been able to come up with these fine-sounding arguments. God, just address those things. Let's get rid of those golden cows that are actual baggage to us.
Throw them away. And in some instances, I believe that there needs to be some level of surgery that needs to go down. You need to have these things cut from you. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you do that right now, that you would just sever completely that which is hooked into people and hook it now. I ask that this congregation can be free and run hard for the next 10 years. Bring a liberty, bring a grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you wanted to respond to that invitation to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. There'll be people up front afterwards that would love to pray with you. Please don't leave this place without making that decision. It's really been wonderful being with you. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Debbie. Just to, you know, just to echo what Ash said, there will be a ministry team up front. If you did make a decision for Jesus this morning or want to ask more questions about that, please come up and see one of those folk. Uh, the ministry team will, as always, be available to pray with you. If you're trusting for healing, for breakthrough, or just needing a friend to stand with you in a, in a tough decision, the ministry team is available to, uh, to spend some time with you. There was a wonderfully prophetic, modern-day prophetic message. Um, I was just so enlarged through it all ministered to personally but just wonderfully stirred prophetically for uh for for our church for our city and and for our nation ash and nadine an outstanding weekend thank you so much for investing in our church and investing in our lives really really appreciate it thanks guys um there will be prayer on wednesday night at 6 30 at uh, our 10 40 venue so come along and be a part of that uh, don't rush off if you are visiting um chris and nancy will be available to uh, meet with you and say hi I look forward to seeing you in the course of the week. Have a wonderful Sunday.